0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long War Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. Created by the world's The Hub is about
1: impact. the Hub is for everyone. I'm Eric Sports, a co-convener of the series this year with Orla Donnelly and Claire Poynton-Smith, all of us PhD researchers in the School of English. This week, we're uh, broadcasting at an odd time because of a scheduling conflict. Our next seminar is the Tuesday after next at the usual time of four to 5 p.m. The staff postgraduate seminars are a longstanding tradition in the School of English. They are an opportunity for Trinity staff, postgraduate researchers and worthy guests to speak about work they're still pursuing or have recently finished. With that in mind, before introducing our speaker, I'd like to announce our call for next term. We're looking for 20-minute papers from postgraduate students and researchers in the School of English. Submit your title, abstract, and a short bio to the email address listed in the call by Friday, December 17th. Once again, we definitely welcome work that is in progress and from students who maybe don't have much experience presenting their research before. And that deadline, again, is December 17th. All the details will be posted to our Twitter and you should also get an email from Diane Sadler at some point. Uh, finally, thank you to the Long Room Hub for hosting this seminar series. The Zoom, se- the Zoom webinar has a Q&A function. If you have a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen and type it at any point during the talk. Near the end, we will take a few minutes and get through as many as we can. All other comments and conversations can go in the chat. If you post on Twitter, tag us at, at TLRHub and at Seminars TCD 2021. Finally, I am delighted now to welcome Professor Chris Morash. Chris Morash is the Seamus Heaney Professor of Irish writing and was formerly Vice Provost of Trinity. His latest book, Yates on Theater, was published in September. He has previously published a number of works on Irish theater and on Irish cultural, culture more generally. He is a member of the Royal Irish Academy. In the past year, he was invited to curate a series of audio plays for the Abbey Theatre entitled Unseen Plays, which are the subject of his talk today. Chris, thank you for coming. Thanks very much, Eric, thanks.
2: Yeah, okay, so this story all begins with a with a voice on a telephone. Um, almost exactly a year ago on a damp rainy Sunday afternoon, November 2020, I was in my garage um, actually wondering what to do with a very large, very wet piece of wood when my phone rang. And the voice on the other end was Graham McLaren, who was then artistic director of the Abbey. Chris says, Graham, and I'm not going to try the Scottish accent. Chris says, Graham, do you know what a binaural microphone is? I said, no, I don't know what a binaural microphone is. Or at least I thought I didn't know what a binaural microphone was. It was only later I realized, in fact, had experienced the effects of a binaural microphone in uh, theatre the previous year in the time before COVID, back in September of of, of, 20, of 2020, when the innovative uh, Dead Centre Theatre Company, working with um, Nick Johnson of our School of Drama here, um, as dramaturg, had staged a play called Beckett's Room in the Gate Theatre. Now Beckett's Room is described by the company themselves as a spectacle of absence. Basically you sat in the gate, each audience member wearing a pair of headphones, looking at an empty stage which was set to look exactly like the apartment in which Samuel Beckett and Suzanne Deschevaux-Dumizy lived in Paris during World War II. Now, over the course of Beckett's room, without an actual live actor ever gracing the stage, Rocking chairs rock, kettles boil, doors open, beds are ruffled, and at one point a reflection appears in the mirror. And you hear, in the headphones, uncannily directional sound of chairs rocking, footsteps on wooden floors, kettles whistling, doors banging, beds creaking. And the odd thing about it all was that after a few minutes of marvelling at the wizardry that made a kettle float in the air and whistle in your ears, You simply forgot that there's nobody on stage, and watched and listened to a play in which Beckett and Suzanne are trying to protect a resistance fighter from absent German soldiers who clatter their noisy jackboots on the floor and kick over the rocking chair. So it turns out I did know what a binaural microphone was. However, at Graham's prompting, I did a bit more exploring and discovered more. Basically, a binaural microphone picks up all of the sound within a defined field. Sorry, yeah, yeah basically a standard microphone is what I meant to say. Picks up all of the sound within a defined field. So the microphone I have here in front of me picks up largely just what is in front of me here, my voice, which is what we want. We don't want to hear the truck that just went by outside the window. In most cases, if you have a microphone that's omnidirectional, that does pick up everything around it, um, the directionality of that sound is only sort of hazily designed. You know, you defined, you just sort of pick it up a bit. There's a noise in the background. Now, with a binaural microphone, it's completely different. What a binaural microphone does is to replicate, pretty much as fully as possible, the experience of sound as directional. It's sometimes described as three-dimensional sound, which is a good way to think about it. And the reason for this is, and this is not a gimmick, is that a binaural microphone, I was going to try and borrow the Abbeys for this talk, and then I realized hooking it up to a computer is not an easy thing to do, is shaped like a human head, the size of a human head, and the microphones are in the ears. And this is not a gimmick. That What it does is it actually replicates all the complex things that happen when a sound over here, over on this side, comes along, goes in this ear, goes through brain and bone in varying proportions, and is picked up by the ear on the other side. And it processes that in exactly the same way your brain does. Now, if you're interested afterwards, Google it. There's lots of binaural enthusiasts out there on the web who are only too willing to share with you the sound of a thunderstorm on leaves or an intersection in New York City. All you need is a good set of headphones. What had Graham excited about with the binaural microphone last November was the possibility—and this was before the great Christmas lockdown of 2020—was the possibility of the theatre reopening on a limited basis, and he was planning a kind of perverse Christmas show of sorts, a production of Dracula. Now. It was going to be headphone theater, and headphone theater, as the name name suggests, involves the sort of thing that I described in Beckett's room, where the audience sit in a theater wearing headphones, either with or without a live actor, and something happens in the theater space. Now, what Graham was really excited about was the prospect that with a binaural microphone, not only do we locate sound on the left-right axis with great accuracy, we also locate it on the up down axis if you like the y as opposed to the x but even more importantly we locate it in terms of proximity how close it is from us or how far a sound can be as far away as a distant roll of thunder or unnervingly close in your ear now proximity wasn't something that Beckett's room worked with with any great extent, because it was trying to create a sonic space that was on the proscenium stage in front of us. But Graham loved the idea that you could have a vampire quite literally breathe down your neck as you sat in the Abbey Auditorium. And I know a couple of poor unsuspecting Abbey staff who he tried this out on, and one of them told me that she was almost relieved that the whole production didn't go ahead because the whole thing had been so frightening. This is often the response to headphone theatre. Some of you may have attended, I'm using that word very carefully, I'm going to come back to it, the Donmar Warehouse production of uh, Blindness, based on José Saramago's novel from 1997, that played the Galway Arts Festival just a few months ago in September. If you don't know Saramago's novel, Blindness, I strongly recommend it. In some ways, it's the ultimate piece of pandemic fiction begins with three cars stopped at a traffic light in an unnamed city the light turns green two of the cars drive off the one in the middle stays where it is because the driver has been unaccountably and suddenly struck blind he goes home and his wife suggests to him that he needs to go to, well <laughs> tells him he needs to go to the doctor so he goes to the ophthalmo- ophthalmologist who can't figure out what's wrong That evening, the doctor, looking through medical journals, trying to figure out what's wrong with this patient, finds himself going blind, as do all the people who are in the waiting room, and ultimately, the whole city. As you might expect, in a world in which everyone has gone blind, things turn very bad very quickly, and it is a terrifying novel. But to sit in a theater is another thing entirely. In the Donmar production, the audience sat in, basically, pods of two in the, it was the McLally Theatre in, in Galway. And above you was a kind of grid of lights. And that grid of lights, at one point in the dark, lowers down in front of you, so when it comes on, you are literally blinded. Now, there's a number of things I could pick up here. One is the idea of theatre of, as contagion, something we find in our toe. But what I want to drop into the argument here is an observation that Lynn Kendrick makes in a book called Theatre Orality that she published in 2017. And she's writing there about a piece of headphone theater that was produced in 2013, a show called Ring by the British company Fuel, in which an audience wearing headphones sit in a ring as part of what seems to be a group therapy session, but one which goes murderously wrong. At one point, the person sitting next to you, you think, in the ring, starts whispering fairly vicious things in your ear. A chair is knocked over beside you. Suddenly there's a fight and a killing, and it all happens, seems to be, in the ring of people you're, you're sitting next to, but of course it's all in your ears. And she draws a couple of observations from this production, and that one is that while the presence of others is what makes performance work, as was the case with blindness, as a theatrical experience, it's also very individual. As an audience member, you feel curiously alone, which is part of what makes it so intense, and particularly when the fictional frame of the narrative is also about aloneness and being on your own. Now, Kendrick's work on orality draws to some extent on the work of a, a, a theorist named George Home Cook, uh, and particularly his book 2015, Theatre and Oral Attention. And what interests me about Home Cook's work is that he grounds his understanding of theatre sound, as I do to some extent, in the work of Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and particularly Merleau-Ponty's comments on speech and sound in the phenomenology of perception. For Merleau-Ponty, Holm Cook argues, and here he's drawing on other work, people like Stanton P. Gardner and Peggy Phelan, that theater, he says, could be perceived, uh, sorry, perception could be perceived as theater. Theater, writes Holm Cook, is thus not only something perceived, but perception itself is inherently theatrical. Perception, like theater, is always inherently unfinished, ephemeral, and in process. And what he adds to this argument, and this to me is his kind of key contribution, is that the mode of perception we adopt when we attend the theater is precisely like something like a kind of phenomenological reduction. And the word he uses for that is the word we use every day, attend. We go to the theater, we attend, we attend to sound. What we perceive, he writes, is phenomenologically dependent, sorry, phenomenally dependent on a particular mode of attention that we adopt. And radio drama, he's writing with radio drama in this case, but audio drama in all forms, is no exception to this. Attention shapes aesthetic experience. So to put it simply, when we commit to listening to audio theatre, whether at home or in a theatre space with others, we commit ourselves to a certain mode of attending, of listening in a particular manner, which in turn is capable of prompting reflections on listening itself. But it wasn't Merleau-Ponty or even a binaural Dracula that Graham McLaren wanted to talk to me about that rainy Sunday afternoon last November. is a person of contagious enthusiasms, and his enthusiasm for the idea of audio theatre led him to think about something on a bigger scale. And so he invited me to curate a whole series of audio plays um, that would be not heard in the theatre, but listened to at home, streamed. And it was that conversation which led to the Unseen Plays series, most of which, all except for one we recorded last summer, and which started streaming on the Abbey website on Monday of this week. Now, what Graham asked me to imagine was a kind of counter-canon of Irish theatre over the past century or so. Plays that had become, for one reason or another, invisible. And as we talked about it, being a person of contagious enthusiasms i think both of us a couple of plays mushroom to nine uh, and without the kinds of restraints on cast size and sets that would usually limit play selection um, we ended up with a couple of plays with casts of like 10 and 12. and so it took on a kind of epic quality by the time we finished um, but then we finally went into Windmill Lane last July and August. We had a cast of, total cast of 68, um, and quite astonishing depth in the casting, and eight directors. And the final running time of all nine plays is, I hadn't counted it up, probably somewhere over 10 hours. Now, in the end, COVID made the binaural microphone, which is what I wanted to use for this, untenable. We simply couldn't satisfy the safety guidelines and have our actors sitting all close enough to the same microphone. But in the end that didn't really matter because more important was the idea of what sound could be that the binaural microphone had opened up for me. In choosing the plays the thing that interests me most was this idea of the unseen as a way of using performance itself to think about the act of listening as attending. and a kind of spectral shadow canon. Now, this aspect of the project was what I considered, I suppose, the more literal way of thinking about the experience of unseen theatre. The idea that we could use a medium that was literally unseen to highlight certain plays that were unseen in the sense of being unproduced, in some cases, for a very long time. So, one of the things I was interested in then was that group of plays by Irish women from the middle of the 20th century, which in most accounts of Irish theatre history is a kind of ellipsis, the kind of gap between the point at which Lady Gregory is a signatory to the Manifesto of the Irish Literary Theatre in 1897 and, say, Marina Carr's The Mai in 1994. Uh, from my own perspective, I had a bit of involvement in the, of looking at this sort of work in the past, particularly with Jonathan Bank in the Mint Theatre in New York have staged quite a few of the plays of Teresa Devi, but also play by a woman named Hazel Ellis, who's completely fallen off um, the spectre, or off, off our radar. So, one of the conceptual spines running through the unseen plays is that we have a series of plays by women from the middle of the 20th century that have been occluded from the canon, that have been unseen. So, these include uh, Lady Gregory's play The Image from 1909, last performed on the Abbey stage in 1924, and I'm going to say a few more words about that in a minute. Uh, Teresa Devi's play Light Falling from originally staged in 1948. Uh, only ran for a few performances. Staged again in 1957. Never done again. And again, I'll say a few more words about that. Uh, Maura Laverty's Liffey Lane, um, 1951. Huge hit. Today Maura Laverty is mostly known for her cookbooks, but in the 50s she was a major playwright. Uh, Morag Negrada's On Trial from 1964. Ironically, probably the play most produced of all these plays, um, <clears throat> simply because it's on the leaving cert. But the fact that it's in Irish means that it suffers from a different kind of invisibility, and so I wanted to include that. And Christina Reeds, did you hear the one about the Irishman from 1980? So in some ways, what we were using was a medium that was invisible to acknowledge a kind of invisibility. Uh, an unseen quality, that these are kind of, if you like, this, this is the kind of spectral counter-canon. Now, since none of these plays, with the possible exception of Entrielle, are familiar, I just want to say a few words about a couple of them, starting with the Lady Gregory play The Image. Um, it's it's, a, it's a comedy about a group of peasants living along the Clare-Galway border, and two whales wash up on the shore. And once these characters become aware of the value of whale oil, a row ensues as to what you do with the bounty, resulting in them deciding through a combination of scheming and misunderstanding to erect a statue to a great Irish hero. Now the question then arises of which hero would be worthy of commemoration? And the dilemma solved by a character is described as a mountainy man, Malachy Nocton, who is played here by Don Wisherly. Now, Hugh Laura is a name he found on a piece of board on the beach. And ultimately, the play goes on, and spoiler alert here, the whales wash away with the tide. Um, the statue to the hero who never exists is never built. And I just thought, I mean, it's a brilliantly written play. It reminds me lots of ways to play with the Western world. But at a time when we're thinking a lot about statues and the durability of statues, and who we build statues to, and commemoration, which seemed to me to be a very, very topical play as well. But there's also something really interesting in this play. When it was staged in 1909, it had a Latin Latin subtitle, Secretum Meum Mihi, or roughly, My Secret Is My Own. And that Latin tag comes into focus near the play's end. When a character named Peggy Mann is described in stage directions as an old midwife as a speech now for most of the play Peggy's mostly concerned about cats drinking out of her tea very queer creatures cats she says how however we also know she's a widow and has been long widowed and treasures the memory of her husband her late husband Patrick almost as a kind of absent presence And near the end of the play, she announces she would not want a headstone or a monument to her late husband. And I want to play a clip from the Unseen Place production of this. So, uh, Eric, if we could play that first clip, the one from the image, we're going to hear here the voice of the actor Morit Negraña. Such
0: abuse to be getting. I might as well be a renegade. Give no heed to them, Peggy. And I
2: myself will carve a slab will-do credit to your man and will keep his name above ground forever.
0: I'll give you no leave to do that. I'll ask no headstone and his name upon it. And strangers maybe to be sounding it out with the queer of talk they have and the gibberish and ridiculing it. And maybe making out my clean comrade, my comely Patrick, to be but a blemished little manine. Having a stuttering tongue. She goes into the cabin and turns at the door. A queer race here. A queer race. It is right, Maliki, quitting you. And it was wise. Any person to own a heart secret, it is best for him to hide it in the heart. Let the whole world draw near to question me, but I'll be wise this time. I'll say no word of Patrick Mahan and no word of Hugh Begolora that is maybe nearer to him than some that are walking the street. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'll be wary this time and I'll be wise, very wise. I'll be as wise as the man that didn't tell his dream. She goes into her house and shuts the door. Mannion comes in.
2: Okay, thanks. Uh, great voice, yeah? One of the things running through this talk is an idea that I've been working with, actually in, in, in the book I just finished on Yeats, and this is about theatre as thought, theatre as a form of thought. And I want to use the voice of the actor there, Mora Negronia, as a way of thinking about, well, thinking about theatre as thought. Now, Maura joined the Abbey Company in the mid-1960s, 1966, actually. And she's been in over 150 shows over the years. Um, and she joined the Abbey Company when it was still a company. And she would have been acting in the 60s with actors who had learned their craft in the 1930s and 40s. And they, in turn, would have learned their craft from some of the original, uh, the original actors who were in the Abbey Theatre at the very beginning. So there's a quality to Moret voice there, apart from what she's saying, that I noticed was completely different than the quality of voice that I was hearing in the younger actors. So not just listening to her voice, but attending to it in that sense that George Home Cook uses, made me reflect on the quality of the voice um, as, as a speech. To put a complex argument simply, A physical object, such as the shelf of books behind me, might exist in time, but time is not one of its constituent qualities. A sound, on the other hand, has duration. A sound that lasts for a second and a sound that lasts for an hour are quite different things in perceptible qualitative ways. I mean, so much so that we have musical notation to show us the difference in the duration of a sound to differentiate one from the other. Now, two things follow from this that might seem self-evident, but for me are critical for understanding any kind of audio theatre, whether headphone theatre or audio theatre attended individually. Because duration is a constituent quality of sound, audio theatre takes our experience of time as a raw material. So, on one hand, there's an irreducible quality of presentness to any sound. When we listened to that clip, we heard it in the present. We heard it now. However, what fills that present need not be of the present. I think and Egragno's voice remembers an older departed way of acting and of speaking that I hear manifested in the presence in the voice, just as the speech itself is about remembrance of something that is gone, in this case her husband, which is nonetheless present in the speech. So we're not just hearing something from another time, we're hearing something in another time, which nonetheless fully occupies the present and is of the present. Now, this might make you think that I would be making a distinction here between sound as a temporal medium and the visual as a spatial medium. And this argument is made by various people. Jonathan Stern, for instance, in his book The Cultural Origins of Sound Reproduction, offers a series of binaries: sound vision, in which one of his principles is, vision is primarily a a spatial sense, hearing is a temporal sense. However, I think this actually might be too simple. For one thing, if we go back to Merleau-Ponty, he at one point suggests that all senses are in some sense spatial. A sensation, he writes, would be no sensation at all, this is in the phenomenology of perception, Um, were it not the sensation of something, and things in the most general sense of the word, for example specific qualities, stand out from the amorphous mass of impressions only if the latter is put into perspective and coordinated by space. And I think this is one of the reasons that the binaural microphone, for me, prompts speculations about sound, even though we didn't end up using it in the unseen plays. This idea then that sound can have a kind of synesthesia effect with space and with vision is something that one of the other plays prompts. This is Teresa Devi's Light Falling. Now, I'm not going to go into DV's story in any great length. DV, um, I think, is a fascinating playwright. Uh, she was born in Waterford. She, went, she became deaf in her early 20s um, and started writing plays, um, partly when she was learning to lip-read. Um, in the 30s, she had a great run of success in the Abbey Theatre, and then the Abbey dropped her. But here was a writer who had become deaf, before the invention of radio. She became deaf about 1919, 1920. The first radio broadcast by the BBC is 21. The first RTE Radio Aaron broadcast is 1926. And she starts writing for radio. And the clip you're about to hear from the Unseen Plays series is is from a play that was originally written as a radio play in 1947 and then staged in The Peacock in 1948, Light Falling. And it's a play, as the title suggests, about light. Um, Seems like a simple afternoon in Donegal, where there are two, is an English couple, a painter named Mr. Leslie and his wife are visiting the area. And there's an older man there, Pat Scully, who has a difficult relationship with his daughter uh, Mary, and um, no, actually his daughter-in-law Mary, and and his son John. And as the play ends, there's this moment where the painter and Old Mr. Scully, Pat Scully, played here by Philip Judge, talk about light falling. So, um, Eric, if we could play the second clip there. This is light falling from originally 1948
1: uh, by Teresa Devi. He's better left alone. I'll bring in the potatoes.
0: Mary goes to the sack of potatoes. I'll take what I want now. You can bring it in later. John also goes to the potatoes, preparing to take them. But Mary stands fingering the potatoes, examining them. They are a good size.
1: Aye, they are.
0: Pat, unseen by them, leans forward in his chair, watching them intently. We'll want some more turf brought in from the yard.
1: I'll get some from below because that's drier.
0: She takes a few potatoes in her apron and goes in. John takes up the sack and follows in. Pat leans back again in his chair, passes his hand slowly across his eyes, then sits very still, thinking. From the back of the house, Mr Leslie comes on, walking quickly. Mr Scully, I forgot my pipe. That would be a bad thing, Mr. Leslie. See, I left it here, on the windowsill. If I'd seen it... Yes, I I know. Did I disturb you? No, a bit drowsy. I was wakened by the two of them, Mary and John. They disturbed you? No, they didn't. It was very good to hear them. I must go on. The bus, you know. Wait now a minute. I saw what you were saying, Mr Leslie. what was that? What's that you call it? Light falling and we don't see it. It was when they were talking, usual like, about the turf and the potatoes, that I saw it falling around them.
2: you ah. have had a rare moment so, Mr Scully. Take a nap now, get more rested. I can't delay. A rare moment. Very clear. Thanks, thanks, Eric. Um, it's a very subtle play. The actors love this. Um, Philip, the actor playing uh, Mr. Scully there, uh, Philip Judge at the end said, look, I've never heard of Teresa Devi before, but she's now my favorite playwright. Um, Just the the credits there, that was Zara Devlin as Mary, Killian O'Garvey as John, Philip Judge as Pat Scully, and uh, Peter Campion, actually, as Mr. Leslie. Um, Here you've got a play, then, which is about the quality of light and about perception and about seeing ordinary everyday life. Um, One of the jokes in rehearsal was this play probably has more potatoes per minute than most other plays. So watching ordinary life, potatoes, turf, um, and yet it's somehow having an aesthetic quality. So I think what we're experiencing here, though, when we listen to it, is a relation between the auditory and the visual that we m- might intuitively think is actually belong in two separate categories, but are here actually being merged in a really interesting way. Now, by way of moving toward a conclusion, um, I want to explain, I suppose, a bit more about this idea of kind of thinking through theatre, and particularly, I suppose, the way in which theater allows us to audio theater allows us to attend to sound in a very particular way and the experience of sound in relation to temporality um, and 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 to what inhabits our present now just to give you the, the kind of rest of the of, of the unseen plays um, there were nine of them in total so the other the other five were um, Play by W. B. Yeats, "The Words Upon the Window Pane," which I'm going to play a short clip from you in a, for a moment. M. J. Malloy's "The Wood," "The Whispering" from 1953, play about a group of elderly uh, bachelors at the edge of a village, in a town that's dying. Um, Richard Johnson's 1961 play, "The Evidence I Shall Give," which I do want to say a few words about, um, and then finally, um, "The Pentagonal Dream," which was created by a company called Operating Theatre in 1986. Um, I don't have time here to do justice to it, but I'd love to talk about it in the questions and answers because this is a fascinating thing. But I want to just say a few words first about The Evidence I Shall Give, which again is a play I suspect most people don't know. Um, it was only ever performed in 1961. There was a rehearsed reading a few years back. And I want to try to connect it, if you like, to that experience of Mara Negrana's voice. Now the evidence i shall give um it seems like a kind of ordinary courtroom drama it's written by a actually a district court judge named richard johnson um his his son actually was the president of the high court passed away a couple years ago and it's a play that seems like an ordinary courtroom drama we have you know sergeants prosecuting people for missing bicycle lights and things like that but out of this kind of bunch of stories in the courtroom comes a story of a nun trying to have a young girl incarcerated in a reformatory, basically for just not obeying rules in a a convent. It's basically, it's about institutional abuse. This is 1961. Now, I think all of us can remember moments from... The late 1990s onwards, if you like, things like the Channel 4 documentary about the Magdalene Laundries, Sex in a Cold Climate, Mary Rafferty's work, the late Mary Rafferty's work, things like the documentary Cardinal Sins, which led to the establishment of the Murphy Commission into Sexual Abuse in the Dublin Diocese, or things like the Murphy Report, or the Mother and Baby Homes Report, uh, which just came out in, in, in the past year. And there have been theatrical responses to that as well. Things like Anu's production of Laundry, or the Abbey's um, response to the Mother and Baby Homes report, um, Home Part 1. Now, the evidence I shall give belongs in this frame. But what is remarkable about it is it's from 1961. And when I start looking at these unseen plays, I realize this was a theme that was running through them. That, in fact, the Moral Laverty play from 1951, Liffey Lane, has a subplot, a fairly major one, involving a child who's being put into an orphanage so that their parents can move into a better house. They're living in a tenement, but the, other, the, the house they're moving to won't take the child of an unwed mother, the daughter of the family. So the child's sent off to an orphanage. Um... And, of course, trial involves a relationship between someone in authority, um, uh, an abusive relationship, effectively. So there's a strand running through these plays that is about the unseen in Irish society in a, in a very, very different sense. Now, if you go through most of the kind of accounts of institutional abuse that have appeared over the last, say, even the last 30 years, novels, memoirs, films, documentaries, plays, the narrative that appears over and over again is one of revelation, exposure, unveiling. Now, what strikes me as interesting here is that unveiling can take the form of repetition, On the face of it, you might have thought that once something is unveiled, it can't be unveiled again. And yet, here we are, experiencing it over and over again, each time, as if for the first time. So there's clearly a puzzle here, and it occurred to me that there's a common quality between our experience of unveiling as repetition and the quality of Mora Negrana's voice. If the intended voice fully inhabits the present to the extent that it can contain the quality of pastness, then the experience of hearing unveiling can be experienced as if for the first time again and again and again. When we first started work on this play that's in rehearsal at the moment, The Pentagonal Dream, where we basically had to re- recreate the script, Sebastian Barry remarked to me that the whole process would be like a seance. And I knew then I'd picked the right play as the first play in the series, W.B. Yeats' The Words Upon the Windowpane, because it is basically a play about a seance. The whole play is very unusual in Yeats' canon in that it's kind of a realist play in which a group of people gather in a house in Dublin, a house with which Jonathan Swift had been associated for a seance. And because Swift had been involved, associated with the house, his spirit intervenes in the seance. So, Eric, could you play that? Third final clip please, Uh, this is the words upon the window pane by W.B. Yeats. It was mad.
0: Who are you talking of, sir? Well, Swift, of course. Swift? I do not know anybody called Swift.
1: Jonathan Swift, whose spirit seems to be present tonight. What? That dirty old man. He was neither old nor dirty when Stella and
0: Vanessa loved him. I saw him very clearly just as I woke up. His clothes were dirty, his face covered with boils. Some disease had made one of his eyes swell up. It stood out from his face like a hen's egg.
1: He looked like that in his old age. Stella had been dead a long time. His brain had gone. His friends had deserted him. The man appointed to take care of him beat him to keep him quiet.
0: Now they are old. Now they are young. They change all in a moment as their thought changes. It is sometimes a terrible thing to be out of the body. God help us all. Dr. Trench at the doorway. Come along, Corbett. Mrs. Henderson is tired out.
1: Goodbye, Mrs. Henderson.
0: He goes out with Dr. Trench. All the sitters, except Miss McKenna, who has returned to her room, pass along the passage on their way to the front door. Mrs. Henderson counts the money, finds her purse, which is in a vase on the mantelpiece, and puts the money in it. How tired I am. I'd be the better of a cup of tea. She finds the teapot and puts the kettle on the fire, and then, as she crouches down by the hearth, suddenly lifts up her hands and counts her fingers, speaking in Swift's voice. Five great ministers that were my friends are gone. Ten great ministers that were my friends are gone. I have not fingers enough to count the great ministers that were my friends and that are gone. She wakes with a start and speaks in her own voice. Where did I put that tea caddy? Ah, there it is. There should be a cup and saucer. She finds the saucer. But where's the cup? She moves aimlessly about the stage. And then the saucer falls and breaks. Perish the day on which I was born.
2: Okay, thanks, Eric. We cut it there. That's great. That's okay. that's the end uh, of the play. Um, the, the, okay. So that was just just to give you the credits. There. That was Ian O'Reilly. Was Don Corbett. The wonderful Don Wisherley was Mister Trench, and Helen Norton um, playing the really difficult role of Mrs. Henderson, this the the the, the, the medium where she's doing something really interesting. I mean, she's playing a character who, because it's a realist play, takes place in the present. You know, it, it, That's the convention of realism, that you're in the present, even if that present isn't our present. But intruding into that present is a voice from the past, which of course is recurring over and over again as repetition, as Yeats believed happened to the soul after death. In this case, it's the voice of of Swift. And elsewhere in the play, we get the voices of Stella and Vanessa. So we have, in this particular moment of theater here, of audio theater, we have in the voice a kind of a temporal shifting. And in this case, happening within the same voice and the voice of the same actor. This brings me back, As a way of just concluding then to something that Merleau-Ponty writes about the phenomenon of speech. He says, we must first recognize that for the speaking subject, thought is not a representation. That is, it does not explicitly posit objects or relations. The orator does not think prior to speaking, nor even while speaking. His speech is his thought. The listener, similarly, does not think about the signs. The words occupy our entire mind, and we experience the necessity of speech. If this is right, the phenomenological attitude that's produced by attending to speech in audio theatre is one in which speech occupies our entire mind to the extent that it produces a present moment capable of containing, is probably the best word, the past. And this is what I hear in the voice of Moira Negrana, in the shock of revelation as if for the first time of the unveiling of trauma, or in the voice of Swift appearing in a seance. What we're hearing in audio theatre then may well be the phenomenological reduction of speech itself as embodied thought, in a form that may well be even purer than theatre performed upon a stage. And that's where the voice that I heard in my garage on a wet Sunday last November brought me. So,
1: thanks. Thank you, Chris, that's great. That's really interesting. Um, Was sort of disheartening to learn uh, from Lady Gregory's play that uh, the argument over the whale oil and the argument over the whale oil windfall that uh, uh, disputes over arts funding, (laughs) <laughs> are a century old yeah. um so I mean, it's, uh,
2: it's, it's a hilarious play because the whales wash up on a headland that is one half of it's monster and the other half's Connaught. so the the, the monster men and the Connaught men don't want to give way to each other so somebody suggests a, a monument to daniel o'connell somebody else suggests a monument to parnell uh, and as a way of kind of splitting the difference they 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 hear this name hugh Alora. and they think oh yeah we'll pick Hugh Alora because it won't you know it won't it won't give any credit to the other side and of course hugh Alora never existed um wonderful playbook commemoration <laughs> yeah
1: um so we have a few questions for you um uh, the first off is uh if playable sound has made the theater going experience more mobile what if anything does this signal for the future of our physical theatrical environments Hmm. that's a really interesting question in fact this morning
2: i was i was moderating um a, a zoom panel for the Irish theater Institute um, who have a, an event on today and actually tomorrow as well um, based on the Irish playography so I was moderating a discussion between uh, Sonia Kelly playwright and Lynn Gardner the who was well, theater critic for the Guardian for like 23 years now edits the stage magazine and we were talking about exactly that um, and Lynn Gardner now I'm gonna say she she was theater critic for the Guardian for, for 23 years um I've probably seen more plays than I've had hot dinners, um, she was saying that in her view, um, this has produced a kind of democratization of theater going in some ways, probably the best way to put it, or, or it has facilitated access. That there are people now able to see plays um, who wouldn't have been able to in the past, whether for access reasons, wheelchair accessibility, or just simply geography. Um, and, and I know, I mean, there have been plays that have been on, say, in Galway, um you know and and the walsh's medicine that i've watched online simply because going to go away to watch it wasn't really an option so i think my hunch is that the kind of streaming of live plays that we're seeing now will continue um the only thing, toward the end of our discussion this morning willie white kind of came into the question session answer session who's you know, you know who's been quite involved with a lot of 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 theatrical production over the years and he said well is it going to be the case that the money that's going into actually streaming is taking away from live theater and i think that'll be the crux of it but i think the desire will certainly be there and i think it's changed our idea of what constitutes theater space
1: okay yeah um yeah forget wheelchair access just just trying to sit just trying to sit down in the <laughs> Abbey Theatre if you're over six feet tall is, exactly, is, yeah. is tricky. Um, our second question is that uh, you said you didn't have time to talk about Sebastian Berry's Pentagonal Dream, uh, but I think we'd be interested to hear about that play and how you came to choose it for the list and maybe a little about how you and the Abbey Theatre rescued it.
2: Yeah, thanks. I mean, this this is why I could talk all afternoon with this
1: one. Um,
2: the, the Pentagonal Dream was a piece that was created by a company called Operating Theatre, who were basically the composer, um, Roger Doyle, who's a member of Ace Dona, you know, brilliant um, electroacoustic composer, and the actor, um, Owen Fourier, who, you know, just played iGirl in The Abbey. And they were doing work in the 1980s that you look at it today, um, and it looks kind of cutting edge. It's, it's. Uh, I mean, to what to, to look at? when going from I Girl to the Pentagonal Dream. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's not like the Pentagonal Dream looks like the older play. I mean, it was very much theater that was using sound, was doing really, really fascinating things. And I had a dim memory of this. I saw the 1986 production, and it had never been staged since. There was no script. So this was a complete punt in the dark that I committed the National Theatre to resurrecting this thing because it could have been awful, but it wasn't. Um, So there was no script written down. In Sebastian's archive in the Harry Ransom Centre in the University of Texas, Um, there's a partial script. There was a scratchy VHS video that Roger had saved. Um, but it was very difficult to interpret because the pentagonal dream basically involves Olwen playing five different aspects of toxic masculinity is the best way to describe it. So there's a character called the murderer, which is about as toxic as you can get. There's the fetishist. uh, There's a father. There's a preacher. And there's a storyteller. Um, And she all goes from one voice to the next, in this kind of dreamlike journey and th- the play worked by using a piece of 1980s sound technology called a vocoder um, when we start talking about in, in windmill lane about this all the engineers got really excited because they hadn't seen a vocoder in like 30 years um, and it's a piece of equipment that's a microphone and when the actor speaks through the microphone it triggers Sounds that a musician is playing on a keyboard that are then treated in various ways. So the voice, the actor's voice becomes like a musical instrument, but it produces all sorts of weird and wonderful sounds. And they had all sorts of other filters going on as well. So occasionally the voice, whoa, kind of go like this. They let the voice feed back. They would do all sorts of things with the voice. So you had Owen doing this one person show all the way through doing five different characters with the voice being treated in all these different ways and it's incredibly intense so what and and but it was based on the script by sebastian barry and sebastian had written the script out of his cv largely um it hadn't really appeared on his cv it was the first play he ever wrote so um we start talking about this last june and i think initially i think People were, you know, everybody's a little bit wary of it, but then they jumped in with both feet. So um, I spent Monday of this week with Sebastian and Olwen and Roger and the original director, David Heap, sitting around a table with the old scratchy VHS video um, and the partial script trying to kind of work on putting this script together. And we've got a vocoder, and so we're actually going to recreate this. And I think it's going to be a real revelation for people because you know, it's a kind of play, if you weren't there, you have no way of knowing of it. And it just, I think it reframes Irish theatre history in a really interesting way. I see Claire put in there, sounds very, really, very cool. It is really, very cool, yeah. So,
1: yeah, it's fascinating. So you said, uh, so a script existed at one point. Do you know, like, how, uh, how much was the the treatment of the voice and the and the different experiments with it. How much of that was meant to be improvised? How much was of that was actually planned by uh, by Sebastian? Um, it was
2: it was a really and this makes it different than the other plays. It was really a collective production, a, cr- a collective creation. So Olwyn and Roger had been working quite closely together. Um, they they both knew Roger or Sebastian at the time. And so Sebastian had written the script. So what Olwyn performs is the script. But well, what you hear in performance is very much a live collaboration between Olwyn and Roger, with Olwyn doing the performance and Roger with his keyboards and his all his various devices doing this live, kind of producing this sound live. Um, and so he said, he said it was slightly different every night. So he, I mean, he's, he's, he's a great keeper of his own stuff. In fact, he's donated a lot of it to Trinity. Um, I don't think it's archived yet, but it's, in, it's actually in our library. So we have Roger's archive, um, which is gonna be a great PhD project for somebody. Um, he, so he actually had an old cassette recording of some of the sounds, so he's recreated the music. Um, and this is why when Sebastian said, it's gonna be like a seance, you had the original people creating this work. You had Roger recreating the music. All when, you know, after 35 years, we'd be going through the script, she'd say, oh yeah, I remember this piece, which is incredible. Um, Sebastian going through what he was going through at the time, you know, a much younger person, trying to remember what was going on in the script and and, and kind of reassembling it. So it's been a kind of collective project of reassembly. Uh, we record it next, next week, next Thursday, and for this day next week, I'll be in windmill lane with them recording this thing
1: nice okay so we, we, that actually leads well into our third question so you, you had to do a lot of sort of imaginative work as as the recreators of this play as the re- resurrectors of this play you're sort of a theatrical victor frankenstein <laughs> <laughs> patching it together and zapping it to life again Um, But the question is, does listening to a piece of audio theater require more imaginative work on the audience's part than the visual experience, which might be seen as more passive?
2: Yeah, no, I think it does. Um, One of the things that was feeding into this project for me the whole time was um, I, I had really just finished work on the book that came out a few months ago, um, Yeats on Theater, which I've rather shamelessly put on the shelf behind me here as a, as a kind of completely shameless plug. And one of the things that Yeats talks about quite a lot, and one of the things I was quite interested in with Yeats, was he talks about stage design. And he says, the theater design should not be, and the word he uses is space pervading. He said a theatre design should not be like a painting. And, um, and and at one point he uses the phrase meretricious easel painting. He says it shouldn't be like that because if what you see fills your mind or it fills your experience, perhaps in a better way of putting it, then your imagination, your mind isn't kind of free to work. So there, he said there should be just enough on the stage to trigger the idea of you know if it's a forest or wherever it is you happen to be so that the words and the sound of the words and the voice can kind of fill your consciousness and allow you to uh, allow you to imagine as you say so that there's an active production of the performance by the audience so the audience aren't just passive recipients of the performance they're actually almost co-creators through the act of active listening and that would be Yates' understanding, I think, of how theatre works. And I think it's one of the things that makes him a much more radical thinker about theatre than we tend to give him credit for. But it occurred to me that with audio drama, that that is what happens as well. That a good audio drama insists upon the audience being co-producers. So one of the things we did here was, um, I quite deliberately didn't create the kind of soundscape that you would have with, say, a radio play. So we don't have the sound in the background of, you know, of horses and cars and birds and trees or trains or whatever. We, As you heard in some of those clips, we have somebody reading stage directions. So it's as if you're at a rehearsed reading where the stage directions are read to you and you just, you have to imagine it. So cool.
1: Uh, Thanks. <laughs> uh, do, uh, so our last question is... Um, Do do you think the the current boom in the popularity of uh, audio plays and audio books, um, presumably brought about by the pandemic, uh, will persist into the future? Are we living in a a golden age of audio theatre?
2: Yeah, I think we probably are. And I think, you know, for some of the reasons I was was saying earlier about about streaming of theatre, I think people's perception of what constitutes theatre has been expanded in a funny way by the pandemic, forcibly expanded. Um, I mean, there, there have been plays over the last, you know, over the last 18 months <laughs> that have, you know, have taken place, you know, using, you know, kind of social media, using Twitter. Um, Lynn Gardner was talking this morning about a play that she experienced that involved a kind of series of postcards. We got postcards through the posts and that was how the play unfolded. Um, I think that our, our sense of what constitutes the space of the theater, the space where theater takes place. Has been kind of forcibly transformed by the pandemic so that experiencing a play through a screen or through a pair of headphones is a legitimate, that's the right word, theater experience in a way that it might not have been to the same extent for as many people beforehand. So, yes, I think, I think, you know, it's. Once you, once you let the genie out of the bottle, the genie's out of the bottle, you know? It's the, it's like the CIA apparently used to say, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, at one point in my life um, at work, I, I listened to around eight hours of audiobooks a day of varying quality. Mm-hmm. And... I've got to say, to have such a selection available to free, for free from the Abbey Theater, yeah. uh, with such acting, such beautiful and expressive voices, um, and totally aside from their their value to scholars, uh, uh, to this group, um, I, what a wonderful thing you've helped to create uh, thanks, for the nice. for the world. Uh, so, thanks very much for that, and and thanks for taking the time to speak to us today about it. It was a wonderful talk. We really enjoyed it having you here. Um, and the, the, the recording and the podcast will be available mm-hmm. uh, of this. Um, let's see, what what other business do we have? Our next seminar is the Tuesday after next, um, November 16th from 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, Dr. Alex Alonzo will be speaking totally coincidentally about Seamus Heaney and the radio imaginary. Um, so thank you again, Chris.
2: Thank you. I mean, it's customary to say it's been a pleasure, but it really has been a pleasure. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed talking about this. So thanks very yeah. much uh, to, to, to Eric and everybody on, uh, involved in this. Thanks very much.
1: Yeah. Thanks. All right. is a this. community.
2: Stepping provenance Languages, towards the needs history needs of the, the Time of the Year Library.
0: As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by the world The Hub is about impact. <laughs> The hub is for everyone. And the rise of feminists are fighting through appears to the next
1: ten years.